Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 168, Board Game Themes versus Mechanisms. Presented by Gil Hoba. everyone doing? <laughs> I've been better. If I do this. <laughs> this, this is like a, one of those internet fail compilations, isn't it? <laughs> oh my god. No, this is actually the opening. Yeah, this is, this is like, I'm like, the, I'm my own opening act, I think is what it comes down to. All right, plug this in over here. We're gonna put this up over here. We're gonna pull this around. Okay, stay. We're gonna keep this over here. Excellent, okay. I think we're finally ready to begin. There you go. Oh. <laughs> My God, okay, well. So I got some bad news for you, because I was going to talk about like player in three purses and theme and mechanism, but I totally got a great idea for a game, and I wanted to share it with you. Okay, so we are not gonna we're not gonna talk player in three persons. Instead, I'm going to tell you about my amazing game. Okay, uh, so in this game, uh, one player gets to play marauding chaotic space zebras, and that's zebra with an X. Uh, the other player plays a species of sentient space pudding. Okay, now they're both battling it out over a space station, and the player who gets control over the space station wins. It's awesome, right? I mean, it's going to be amazing. So here's how it's going to look. Okay, we're going to represent the space station by a three by three grid. Okay, uh, so the zebras are going to go first, and they're going to be represented by an X. All right, it's so super thematic. Okay, now the pudding. The pudding, of course, we're going to have these really cool flying saucer minis. But to represent it for now, we're going to represent them with just an O, okay? And why are you shaking your head? Okay, so let's talk about what's, what's going on here. I mean, because I'm sure you've had play tests like this. Somebody comes in really excited. They come in with a game with this crazy audacious theme. And, you know, it, the, the, the gameplay just doesn't live up. And we're going to be talking about a bunch of things today. But I wanted this to be the, the starting point of... Um, just why is it that uh, we can promise this crazy audacious theme and it just doesn't always deliver? So it turns out a game is more than just its theme, right? We just proved that over here. You know, we had this great theme and we have a game that, you know, maybe if you're a tic-tac-toe aficionado, you'd like it, but most people would not be into it, you know? Um, so for a long time, I thought games were like a collection of mechanisms uh, with a theme like overlaid on top, right? 
but that's not the case either, you know? Now, you guys know, I don't know if you heard about my whole long tale about my game with an auction mechanism, but I've had this auction mechanism, and it's been in like four different games. And each time, it winds up being the same thing. Like, I make the game, and then I make this crazy good auction mechanism with a crazy good theme, and then at some point, somebody says, it's a cool auction, it's a cool theme, but they're just not working with each other. And I take the auction out of the game, and the game gets better. So I take what, until then, has been a game that's been testing well, and I remove an auction mechanism that's been well-received, and the game improves. To boil it down even further, I take a good mechanism out of a good, uh, out of a good game, and the game improves which is a riddle of game design, you know? How can that happen? Mathematically, it just seems weird, right? When you remove something good from a good game, it shouldn't make the game better, and yet, that's what happens. So, to me, games aren't just about their mechanisms either, if this can happen. There's gotta be something more going on, you know? So that's the, the riddle of game design for me. So, I'm sure you've heard a lot about uh, people who talk about games as mechanisms, uh, I'm sorry, games as experiences. And I think that's a much better way to look at game design rather than just looking at games as, well, what's the mechanism, what's the theme? Um, I think this experience-based game design, ever since the first time I heard about it, I realized this is a really, really good way to look at games, you know? And I've said in previous talks, you know, your game really lives at the intersection of its theme and its mechanism, you know? One of them is not necessarily more important than the other. One doesn't necessarily live on top of the other. You really want the two of them to cross, you know? Even for a dry strategy Euro game, there's ways to make them work together and play nicely together. Because if they resonate off each other and they complement each other, that's really what you want, you know? You don't really want a situation where, um, the theme and the mechanism are just butting heads, as we just saw with our Space Zebra game, Zebra with an X. So let's uh, take a look at some case studies. And it's tricky to look at case studies in this case, uh, because with, um, you know, if you look at a successful game, and look at the way uh, that some games do things right, you can think of all sorts of great examples. But when you look at games that didn't always do it right, it's tougher, because you don't necessarily have heard, you won't have necessarily heard about them. Also, I don't really want to, you know, pick on recent games because I feel like that's kind of mean-spirited, but this game's like 10 years old, so I feel like I can, um, uh, I can bring it up as an example. Even though I really like this game, I think this is a really cool little game. It's called Monkeys on the Moon. So here's how it works. Let me tell you the theme. You're on the moon, and there are six warring tribes of monkeys. They need to be civilized, so you're going to civilize the monkeys. As you civilize the monkeys, they will give you favor, but they're, uh, and they have two allied tribes that are also going to give you favor, but they have an enemy tribe to whom you must pay them some favor, otherwise they will um, give you scorn. So the tribes of monkeys are going to get more and more civilized, uh, and then at some point you're going to find the most civilized representatives of these monkeys, you know, find the most civilized tribe and try stuffing them in a rocket and shooting them back to Earth, and that's how you get points. So it's a crazy theme, you know, civilized monkeys on the moon, shoot them back to Earth, get points. Guess what? This is a dry bidding game. This is just purely a dry bidding game, which is fine, you know? I love dry bidding games, but you hear the setup and you hear the, 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 the hook and the 
the, the setup and you think it's going to be this like crazy wild game going back and forth. And I hold this up in my talks as um, this is a game that would have been better if it was about trading in the Mediterranean. I'm dead serious about that, you know. Uh, while a lot of us say I never want to see a game about trading in the Mediterranean again, I mean it has its purpose and its purpose is to say this is not where the game is. I'll give you another example. Uh, this is an old Kinesia game. Um, its name means Hunters and Gatherers. Uh, and if you've ever played Hey That's My Fish, uh, this is kind of similar. It's like an advanced Hey That's My Fish. You know, you set up the board and the board's all like hexagons and then you can take your hunters or your tribesmen and you can move them like in a straight line as far as you want and then you pick up what's on that square. Uh, so it's pretty much like it, it's got that same setup as um, Hey That's My Fish. Uh, hey That's My Fish is a fantastic game by the way. So here's the interesting bit. Um, Amigo got the rights, I think, to everywhere but English. They didn't have the English language rights. The English language rights fell to Twilight Creations. And if you know anything about Twilight Creations, they're not going to make a game about hunters and gatherers. So of the same prototype, this was their game. Zombiegeddon. So a game about hunters and gatherers became a game about fighting zombies. And it was, of course, you go to Board Game Geek and you see the reviews and it's like, this game is nothing like, it, this doesn't feel like a zombie game at all, you know? So people will talk about pasted on theme and things like that, but what, what's going on a lot of times is the theme promises something that the mechanisms don't deliver. There isn't that join, that really strong join that you want. Not many people complained about um, Hunters and Gatherers having a weak theme because that theme is just not sexy enough to really promise that much. Whereas a zombie theme, you're expecting something really specific. So, so what's going on with these thematic failures, really, if you want to take a deeper dive? So um, I hope you guys have all eaten, because uh, if not, this picture would make me hungry. But we're going to talk about steaks, and not that kind of steak. Um, so I saw an interview with Eric Lang, you know, the game designer Eric Lang, and he gave a really interesting point. There's there's this um, saying in screenwriting um, that you want to ask three questions of your screenplay. Um, who are these people? What do they want? Why should I care? You know, And that's sort of the secret behind every screenplay. And Eric says he applies them to his games. And he wants to make his players ask that question as well. And why do you want to ask these questions? It's because these questions set stakes. These questions tell you or these questions set up the players so that they care about the character. Who are these people? What do they want? And why should I care? Okay? So that's one reason why I named this talk Player in Three Persons, because I wanted to dive in into who the player actually is and what the stakes are of each level of that. Uh, there's an essay online. If you Google Crimes Against Mimesis is the name of this essay. It's actually about interactive fiction. But it mentions this concept, and I thought it was really, really useful. So um, let's talk about our three uh, levels of player. And the first level is the player themselves. So we're talking about the human, the meat bag, you know, the person in meat space who is actually playing the game in flesh and blood. They are eating Cheetos, they're drinking Red Bull, and they're hopefully having a good time. Okay? Now, what's the player stakes over here? You know, maybe they want to prove how good they are at the game. Maybe they want to explore the game space. 
Maybe they want to improve. Maybe they just want to get to know their opponents better. You know, these are all stakes that the player, the human being playing the game, is going to have. Um, then we're going to go a level down, and we're going to go to the avatar. Okay, so the avatar is the character that the player is that that represents the player on a thematic level. So, like in Arkham Horror, the avatar are the investigators uh, trying to close a portal. You know, in Pandemic. The avatars, the medical professionals that are racing around the globe trying to uh, cure these diseases. In Munchkin, the avatars are the dungeon adventurers trying to level up, okay? So these are all one level down. These are the avatars. Now, not every game has a clearly defined avatar, right? You look at, like, Settlers of Catan, there's barely any avatar there. Flux, there's no avatar. Ticket to Ride, very weak avatars. You know, they put these figures on the box, but you don't feel like it. You just feel like you're throwing trains down um, onto, and that's, and that's okay, you know? Not having a clearly defined avatar is not a kiss of death by any means, because those three games are incredibly successful despite having fairly weak avatars. But the weaker your avatar, the drier your game is more likely to feel, okay? Um, but also another thing those games have in common is they have a clearly defined agent. And that's the third level is the agent. So the agent is the player's mechanical representation in the game. Okay? So in Arkham Horror, the player's agents are trying to build up enough mechanical power to roll well enough to defeat the final boss character. You know? In Pandemic, they're trying to get enough cards of the correct color in one player's hand to proceed another step closer to victory. You know, in Munchkin, they're just trying to score 10 points. And as you can see, the, the way I've described all these, these are all, um, these are all very mechanical. These are divorced from the theme. I'm sure you play a game enough times and the avatar side starts to fall away and all you see is the agential side. You just see the levers, you just see the knobs, you see how you win the game. And that's purely the agential side, okay? Um, and that's really important, especially for talking strategy board games. Because a lot of players really enjoy playing board games um, from, from the agent's point of view. And the purpose of the avatar is just sort of to lead them in. So there's connections here. And I like, I put together this diagram. And this is still kind of a work in progress. But I kind of feel like this, this is how things go. You know, you've got the player on top. And then you've got joins between the player, the avatar, and the agent. And you've got a good link between the player and the avatar. Um, then it feels immersive. You know, escape rooms feel pretty immersive because the player and the avatar are very close together. You know, there's there are things that pull you out. Like if you're in an escape room, for example, and you see like 15 four-digit locks, or you know, you see another black light flashlight in a place where you don't expect to see one, that pulls you out because you realize, you know, you're that brings you to a more agential view of the game, and that kind of shakes loose this tight bond between the player and the avatar. But the tighter bond you can get between the player and the avatar, the more immersive the game is going to feel. Um, on the other side, the tighter a bond you can get between the player and the agent, the more elegant the game's going to feel. You know, you're, you're feeling like you can really reach down and pull those levers and twist those gears and dials that you need to win the game. And then the cl closer the link between the avatar and the agent, the more thematic the game's going to feel, you know? So now if you feel like everything the agent the avatar does puts you one step closer to victory, like, for example, if the object of the game is to kill three dragons 
and you know you kill a dragon you don't say I got a point you say I killed a dragon and that feels thematic you know and if if you kill the dragon not necessarily by like amassing 15 strength points but by finding the mithril sword and taking it to the the dungeon and surviving the dragon's breath attack you know and if all that stuff is represented in the game that's a tight avatar agent connection and that's why those games feel very thematic um now, now, getting back to elegance, you know, elegance is not necessarily a be-all, end-all. Going back to Tic-Tac-Toe, Tic-Tac-Toe is an extremely elegant game. And I don't want to say Tic-Tac-Toe is a bad game, because it has its place, but it's probably not the game we're looking to design. Come on. Hey, I think I've uh, crashed my computer. Oh, there we go. Yay! So let's get back to our sample games. So what's happening with that awful Tic-Tac-Toe game? Um, so I want to focus on Avatar Agent for a little bit. We'll bring in the player uh, in a moment. Uh, but Avatar Agent is really relevant to what we're doing as board game designers, you know? Um, so when I tell you, you know, I've got a game about space zebras fighting for control of a space station over sentient space pudding. Like, what are you expecting? You know, you're not expecting tic-tac-toe. You're expecting laser beams. You're expecting spaceships. You're expecting explosions in space, that sort of thing. I've made a promise to you by uh, telling you that this is like an epic space battle. And the mechanisms of the game, the ag agential side of the game, needs to live up to that. And if it's too far divorced from it, you're going to have issues. So what happened in Monkeys on the Moon? Uh, the Avatar promised this crazy theme with, um, you know, civilizing tribes of monkeys, whereas the agent, you know, you're just bidding. And there was a real disconnect there, which, um, which is it really made it a weird game to play. I think it's a tremendously fun game to play, but in order to play it, you've really got to shut off the Avatar and just focus on the agent and say, okay, this crazy weird theme, it means absolutely nothing and we got to ignore it. What happened in Zombiegeddon? It has exactly the same, well, almost exactly the same agent. There's slight differences between the two. But it's almost the same agent as the Hunters and Gatherers game, and yet the avatars are totally different. And that's, you know, a big klaxon warning sign, you know? Um, so how can we work to get a tighter avatar agent join? Um, this is an exercise I've done before. I'm going to bring you guys into it. But let's say we're making a game about pirates, okay? I'm not going to tell you anything about the game. I'm just going to say it has pirates. What do you expect to see experientially in a game about pirates? I'm going to throw it to you guys. Treasure. Yes, okay. Ships. Ships. Yeah, rum, very much so. Yes. Very, yes, yes. So, you know, you're not just like, um, you know, you're not going to be like snowballing on an abstract resource uh, allocation mechanism. You're going to be plundering. You're going to be taking things from people. Probably, are you going to be taking things from other pirates? Most likely. I mean, that's what pirates do. They fight. So by making a game about pirates, there's all these expectations that we're setting up. Here's another one. Somebody mentioned ships. So very specifically, you're going to be able to move in the game but the movement may not totally be under your control because it might depend on which way the wind's blowing, you know? And that's a really specific thing. And yet when I mention it's in pirates, if I mention that you're not going to be able to move exactly, you won't necessarily be able to move exactly where you want to, 
your reaction won't be, oh, that's weird. Your reaction will be like, oh, that makes sense because you, you have to go with the wind, you know? Um, so that's like a, that's one really important thing with theme is when I make this theme, I'm making a promise and that promise is super important. So let's do another example. Let's say we got a game about building castles. What's this going to have? Yeah. Resources? Yep. Yep. You're going to have resources. So there's going to be, there might be fighting, but there might not, like if it's, if it's a game about building a castle instead of defending a castle, like if we're looking, because there's lots of games about, it's just, just impress the king by building the biggest castle, you know? Uh, so in that case, by narrowing that theme down, you know, we're looking at games like Kalos or Castles of Burgundy, you know, these games that are not about, you know, knocking down somebody else's castle, but building up your own castle with resource allocation. There's probably going to be some weird-ass mechanism in there that really holds the game together, you know? Um, and I think that's, that, that's an important indication. You know, the pirate game is probably not going to have this strange unique, fresh mechanism that drives the game. You know, the pirate game is probably going to be, you're a pirate, this is your piece, you're going to move around the board and plunder. Whereas this game, you're, you may not be represented in the game as a character, but you are going to have resources that you're going to put together to try to build this castle, and at, you're going to unlock powers that's going to make your job more efficient as the game goes along. And again, all, all we have here is the one word. You know, we have one word and we're already discussing expectations of what we want and if we defy these expectations if we have a game about building castles and then I say okay you can build castles but uh, you can't move exactly where you want to and you can plunder another player's uh, trove it might be a little weird you know and if you have a pirate game and you're like okay this is a pirate game but it's really a role selection game and you have to bid for the roles wait this and where's my pirate piece? Oh, you don't have a pirate piece. You don't have a ship. You don't have a pirate piece. You're just sort of bidding on these rolls. That might be a little weird. Um, I've seen some, some games come close to pulling off either, but you have to know you're swimming upstream in those cases. You know, there's a, you're, there are times when you make your job easier for yourself and times when you make your job harder, harder for yourself. And when you work against your game's theme, you are definitely making your job harder for yourself. So let me give another example. Let's say I got a game about baking cakes, okay? And let's say in my game, I'm rolling dice for each cake until the cake loses its baking points, okay? However, there's a bunch of cakes closing against me from all sides, and they're rolling dice on me, and if they roll dice, I lose baking points. So if what I've got there is not a game about baking cakes. What I've got there is a game about fighting monsters, you know? So these mechanisms that we put in the game, they are going to help inform what the, what the theme of the game is. And sometimes you just want to go as straight as possible. That means doing a tried and true theme. Look, let the game be what it wants to be. You know, If your game wants to be a fighting game, let it be a fighting game. If your game wants to be a pirate game, let it be a pirate game. If you really want to make this really weird game about monkeys on the moon, Make sure the game, the mechanisms of the game feel like that. And if the game starts feeling like you're bidding to get win the favor of these aristocratic nobles, screw it. That's your game. That's what you're making. And sure, people are going to complain. Oh, this game is so dry. It's so boring. Uh, you know, they're going to complain online. Let them, you know. Let the game be what it's got to be. Uh, and 
you know, that's not to say that you can't make a game about, you know, lunar monkeys that you have to civilize, but you better make it feel like that, you know? A theme is a promise you make to your players about what the game's about. So, like, my direct experience here is I have a game called Battle Merchants, and originally it was not, a, you know, it's a game about fantasy arms merchants. Um, and originally it wasn't like that, you know, originally it was a game about building and selling fighting robots, you know, set in the future, building and selling war robots. And I would, set, I would tell people, do you want to play my game about, about building and selling war robots? And they'd say, sure, I'll play your game about war robots. And you see the difference between those, the question and the answer. They sat down, they expected hex grids, they expected heat sinks, they expected rocket launchers, they expected scatter bombs, they got a spreadsheet. And this was a problem. And for some reason, when I rethemed it to a fantasy theme, there's so much mercantilism in a fantasy theme that people are like, oh, okay, I'm forging swords, I'm forging axes, that makes sense. And it was just an easier swallow, it was an easier ask. So um, this is something you just have to keep in mind with your game. If you have a theme that's just two or three steps removed from the mechanisms, you're going to wind up with this cognitive dissonance. And you'll see it when players sit down. They may, you have to look for statements like, oh, this wasn't the game I was expecting, you know? That's not necessarily a good thing to hear from your players because if you want your game to like, look, I'm a designer who wants to sell his games. Like, I want my games to sell. I want my games to sell well. I want people to play my games a lot. Um, and that means that what I give, I want players to realize like when they're opening up the box, I want them to know exactly what they're getting into. Um, when uh, my word game Wordsy, you know, when people pick it up, I'm really proud and happy of the fact that when they look at the game, they know exactly what it's about. You know, they pick it up, they're like, oh, okay, this is a word game. You know, there's no like doubt, there's no mystery. Uh, they look at the networks without even opening the box, they know what the game is about. And you want that. You want the player to not have to make too far a leap. You want them to sit down at the table and know exactly what they're getting into. It's not a huge, I mean, it's not unrecoverable if they don't, but it is, it does make your job a lot harder. And why bring that extra work on yourself? You've got a hard enough job to distinguish yourself from all the other games that came out. Last weekend was Essen, a thousand games that came out at Essen. That's not an exaggeration. Over a thousand games came out last weekend. Last weekend. You have to distinguish your game above all those, and you're going to need all the help you can get. And one of the things you can do is just making the game easier to understand and easier to just grok, just in terms of sitting down and knowing this is the game I'm going to sit down and play. So I want to jump to the dry Euro for a moment, and I'm using Ticket to Ride as an example of what I think it's a fairly dry Euro. I also think it's a marvelous game, and it's earned its reputation as one of the best games out there, but it is a dry Euro, you know? This is not a super thematic game, you know? You don't feel like you're covered in oil when you finish the game, you know? You just feel like you've covered the world in trains, plastic trains. But I've mentioned this, and I've mentioned this before, but um, I think it's okay to have a dry game as long as you make that promise. Like, once you put trains on the box, I think players know what they're getting into. They know there's going to be some level of abstraction. There's, they know there's going to be some level of strategy. They're not expecting something that's super thematic, you know? Um, 
I've, I think last year I, uh, I talked about this in my panel with Jeff, um, about Dominion. Dominion has a really dull and boring theme because it needed a dull and boring theme. It really did. Nobody had made a game where deck building was a central part of the actual game, you know? Obviously there was deck building and magic, but that was a metagame activity that you did that was outside the technical bounds of the game. Nobody had made a deck, a deck building game that was really about deck building. And I am convinced that if Donald X. Vaccarino had made Ascension, people would have been confused and distracted. I'm not saying it wouldn't have done well, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been influential, but Dominion was a massive success. And I'm not so sure that if it had been super thematic and it had this weird theme about interdimensional warfare that didn't really come through in the cards, that I'm not so sure it would have, it would have resonated as much as it did. And I think one of the reasons it resonated is it had this dry theme that said, don't pay attention to me. I'm not the focus. Look at this. Look at this mechanism. You're going to need to put all of your cognitive focus on this weird mechanism because it's really strange. I mean, I remember the first time I played Dominion, I was like, wait, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I, so I buy my cards and I discard the cards that I use to spend and the card I, and that goes in my discard pile and the card I buy goes in my discard pile and the rest of my hand goes in my discard pile. That was weird. That was really, really weird. And had that been mixed with a theme that would have distracted even further, it would have been a tougher sell. So... I, I'm convinced that if you have a game with a wildly spectacular agent, like Dominion was at the time, um, but you also have a wildly spectacular avatar, and they're not connected in any way, you're going to get a game like Monkeys on the Moon. You know, you're going to get a game that is going to confuse your players, and it's going to be less likely to do well on the marketplace. So let's take a second look at abstract games, okay? Um, abstract games have no avatar whatsoever, you know? When you're playing chess, like, it's almost a thought exercise saying whether chess is thematic. Because I guess technically it is. You've got a medieval war. It's a simulation of medieval war. You've got your king and your king, but king and your queen. But really, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is an abstract game at its heart. Um, so you look at a game like chess. You look at a game like Go. You look at a more modern abstract game like Zertz or Yinch or Gif. And they all have these things in common. They... They have, since they have no avatar, their rules are dirt simple. Like, if they have anything more than a very simple rule set, people just get totally lost. Um, the networks originally, like, in a fit of, like, frustration because my auction mechanism wasn't working, I'm like, this game's going to be a pure abstract. Screw it. It's going to be an abstract auction game and people are just going to have to deal with it. It turns out people couldn't deal with it because it was not a simple game and they needed a theme that they could that would help them ease them into the me mechanism. So if your game has no theme, if it's a dry abstract, you need to have the rules be dirt simple so that people can totally wrap their head around the agent without the help of an avatar at all, okay? So it's okay to have a game with a minimal avatar as long as your theme promises that. And if you have a game with no, av with no avatar at all, your agent has to be really, really, really simple. All right, let's get back to the player for a sec. So what stakes does the player have? Um, in a strategy game, you know, the player wants to win. But I want to take a little detour and talk a little about um, telling the story with the game and setting stakes. Because if you want to look at a game from a thematic point of view, from a narrative point of view, 
um, you have. I think you really have to look at the game this way, uh, like, because the player is ultimately going to be cobbling the story together. You know, the, the avatar will help tell the story, and hopefully the agent's actions will help support the story and reinforce the story. But ultimately, it's up to the player to put the story together. And a lot of people do look at game design as an alternative form of storytelling. Uh, but I tell people a lot, if you want to write a, if you want to tell a story, just write a book, you know? It's a lot easier than telling a story with a game, because game design isn't about telling a story. It's about providing players with a vocabulary and grammar they need to tell their own stories. It's a really big difference between sto pure storytelling and storytelling and game design. You know, the game has to tell the story. The players have to tell the story through the game, and the game has to provide the grammar. So it's not just that this one game will always tell the story over and over, because you're probably going to wind up with a really repetitive and boring game. Instead, you want the players to be able to tell the story through their actions in the game. So let's talk about stories that a game can tell. Um, a game with a really well-developed culture can usually tell a comprehensive story. And I'm using football as an example. You know, If I say something like, oh, they were down to the two-minute warning in, um, in, in, in a really close game that was decided by a field goal, but just at the very last second, they could have ran the ball, but it's, they could have ran the ball, but they, inside, they, they decided to pass it, and the pass got picked off in the end zone. Like, people who understand the sport would be like, oh, that was that Super Bowl a few years ago. But people who don't understand football, like, I was just singing to them for like 30 seconds, you know? And it's the same way with chess. Like, I read recaps of chess games that something like, white threatened black's defenses, but black was able to parry. And, but white took their time and developed their... And I'm like, I, okay, this is all like a really nice story, but I have no idea what the agent is doing in this case, you know? I'm understanding a little bit of this avatar that they're building up through this story, but agentially I have no idea what's happening. Because I'm not in the chess culture, like I don't know what all that stuff means. So, now a thematic game, if you have a really super thematic game that has a really strong avatar-agent relationship can really tell a good story. And here I'm really looking at role-playing games, you know, something like Dungeons & Dragons. That avatar-agent relationship is really tight in that game. So when you say that you know your your adventurer went down into the dungeons and slayed the dragon, you really understand that because the, all the agents' actions really support that in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and when I tell you, oh, in my game of D and D, I'm fighting this really. Uh, I, I'm a level 50 character, and I'm really I'm, I'm up against this really nasty dragon. Like, you don't need to understand the agent in that case. Like, talking about the Avatar's actions is enough that you can say, okay, I kind of understand that. I know what's going on. So you don't really need to be in that culture to understand it. So um, that's an example of being able to tell a story through a board game. Um, and so we were talking about role-playing games and LARPs and video games um, and, and interactive fiction, which I've started to get into lately. You see all sorts of rich stories being told. Like, I just mentioned D&D. You can tell so many rich stories in D&D or most other role-playing games. But here in the board game world, the kinds of stories we can tell outside of the game's culture, outside of a culture like chess, they tend to be pretty constrained. We don't have a rich space to tell stories in. Uh, and I think that's because in a board game, we want to win, you know? A board game, most of the time, it's going to have this... Um, condition where we 
where I as a player, I want to win the game, and that's my stakes, you know? Um, most board games are contests. They have an outcome, and the outcome is one player is going to win, or the whole players, the whole team is going to win, the game's going to lose, or the game's going to beat us all. You know, it's going to be generally some zero-sum outcome. Um, and this affects the story that the game can tell. Because um, the story becomes how I win the game or how I lose the game, you know? So like Time Stories, for example, um, tries to tell a, a different story, but you look at the game, and I think it's a good example of um, the Avatar starting to break down on each run, you know? The first run, the Avatar is really, really strong in that game. And then with each run, the Avatar gets a little weaker, and the next run, the Avatar gets weakened, a little more, and by the like the third or fourth run, you're totally looking at the game from an agential point of view. You just want to roll dice, you want to get to specific locations, you want to do certain actions, that sort of thing. Um, there's a game designer named Maddie Bryce, and what she wrote about Netrunner uh, was really interesting. She rethemed Netrunner with tarot cards and wanted to make it a more storytelling game, and one of the things she did was de-emphasize the winning behind it. And I thought the fact that she did that in order to tell what she found a more interesting story was really telling. And this quote over here, I'm going to read you this quote. Um, I've been thinking about the many, many genres of games that I should like, but I don't, and I'm starting to notice a pattern. With card games in particular, and she's thinking about games like Magic, I enjoyed collecting them when I was younger, starting each, studying each card intently to make decks. Though after a while, playing the actual game was thoroughly boring. There's a lot of math and chance, usually. Matches ultimately coming down to gaming the quantitative system the game has in place. Uh, in hindsight, my fleeting enjoyment in these games tended to be in the style and the flourish aspects. Making my deck unique, preparing dramatic moves built more novelty than anything else. However, this soon becomes unenjoyable because of how much these games are based on a quantitative measure of winning. If your decisions don't ultimately serve this purpose, they will be marginal experiences if they even are allowed to happen in the first place. Now, Maddie's coming from a very specific point of view, and you might have people in your game group who are also coming from this point of view. You know, they want to play games to explore, to find new spaces, to tell different stories. And then you've got the other players in the group. They want to win. They want to optimize the system. They want to... Um, I want to figure out exactly how to game things and to um, get the best strategy overall. And that's clearly where, not, where, Maddie's not where Maddie's not where Maddie's coming from. But I think if you're coming from the mindset of trying to tell a story with your game, it's not the first kind of gamer you want. It's Maddie that you want to, to pull in. It's gamers like her. It's gamers who are looking for some sort of flourish and style and narrative. Um, so if you're looking to make that kind of game, this is what you want to look at. You want to look at mindsets like that. I'm going to give another quote from the world of interactive fiction. Um, one of the pitfalls in interactive fiction design is to structure the whole game as an answer to the question, does the player win? For example, imagine that a game is about leading a heroic rebellion against an evil empire and it has two endings. Either the player wins and overthrows the evil empire, or the player loses and the empire continues to oppress people. As soon as the game designer adopts that structure, the game choices in the game become much less meaningful. They can still be tactically difficult and interesting, which of choices A, B, and C has the best chance of producing a winning outcome, but fundamentally the game can only tell two stories. This game comes from Adam Strong Morse, who comes from an organization called Choice of Games. 
Now, I've got to say, in a strategy game, a lot of us like the story of how we won the game. A lot of us like the story of do I choose A, B, or C? You know, so it's not that this is indefensible. It's not that this is bad. You know, but if your goal is to tell a story with your game, you need to be very, very mindful of your winning condition and whether you want players to actually be able to win the game and how meaningful a victory is. So I don't think having players win a game is necessarily a bad thing. I just want to see more board games explore the idea of play without the zero-sum um, winning we're familiar with. Like, for example, if you look at a game where each player has their own victory condition and multiple players can win and multiple players can lose, um, that's one where you might have more flexibility. This idea of the zero-sum win doesn't exist in a design like that. So I think uh, the last few slides, I wanted to just give an example of storytelling and board games. You know, and if you want to um, thematically engage your players, I think one thing you can really do is de-emphasize winning. Uh, so will this work for all board games? Of course it won't. Like, if you want to make Trajan, make Trajan, you know? But be aware what the story... If you want to come, if you want to say, I want to make Trajan, but I want to be able to tell a story. You might have a little bit of an issue there, you know? I was just uh, reminded in my most recent playtest, you know, there's a lot of storytelling games out there, games like Fiasco, uh, a lot of indie RPGs. And I keep getting reminded when I play those games... Um, I want to fail. Failure is good. Failure is awesome. Failure is fun. Failure is interesting. Failure enhances the story. Like, um, if, I, if I'm being stealthy in a room and I fail the stealth check and three guards come rushing in, well, now I get to fight them, and that can be really awesome. Um, but in a board game, I don't have that. You know, I don't want to fail in a board game. I want to win wire to wire. I mean, you know, there's... Comeback victory is good, but if it were up to me, I just I want to win early, I want to win mid, middle game, and I want to win late. So the kind of story that I'm incentivized to tell in a board game is very, very different. So um, if, you're play, if you're trying to design a board game and you want it to tell a story the same way that something like Fiasco tells a story, you're up against this thing where the players are expected to win, and you somehow have to decouple that and pull them away from these, this winning incentive. That's, that's going to be a tricky thing that I think we're going to see more board games start to take on over the next few years. Okay, so this is a totally new framework to me, you know, looking at players from a player-avatar-agent relationship, and I'm still toying with this. I'm going to keep on refining this model over the next few years, but um, it's already helped me a ton, you know, just looking into games, seeing how theme and mechanism work together to try to tell a story. And I think it helps me understand a few truths about game design. Uh, I want to open up the floor to questions now. Do you guys have any questions so far? Yeah? So at the beginning, you were talking about your auction thing, and you applied it to a couple, uh, four, I think. You said. Yep. You played the fourth. I did. And I liked it very much. Thank you. The theme worked with it. Yes. So this one, you won't be stripping apart. I hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But um, <clears throat> I see a lot of games that uh, it's really evident which game Mm -hmm. The theme or the mechanism. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Which, uh, about which way is uh, that, so which, a way to go? I don't know. So what, com what should come first, theme and mechanism? I don't think... So I th there's a few different perspectives I've heard on this. Ultimately, I think the big thing is I don't think it matters in the long run. I think what matters is 
that the two join in the end. But I don't think one is intrinsically better than the other. I think if you're more comfortable with one approach than the other, that's cool. Reiner Kinesia says if you're more comfortable with one than the other, then do the other and get comfortable with that. Because uh, he, he wants to see designers push themselves because that's generally how they do good work is when they try to do stuff that they've never done before. So, um, like, I these days, um, we asked, I, on my podcast, we asked Jeff Engelstein this question, and he gave a fantastic answer that totally blew our minds. And he was one of the first people to say, I don't come from theme or mechanism. He says he starts with an experience. He says, how do I want players to feel when, we, when they play this game? And then he uses that to inform what theme and what mechanism he should put in. So um, I think... Like some people have a mindset of you must always start with theme and other people have a mindset of you must always start with mechanism. And I think those are the ones that are the most problematic. But I think the important thing is if you can find that join or find the place where the two get along well. Like if you realize, look, this game is just going to be a dry optimization euro and I'm just going to be happy with it. So I'm going to ditch the space station theme and I'm just going to make it about building a castle. Well, fine, okay, that's what the game wants to be, that's what the game wants to be, let it be that, you know? Uh, you can try putting a new theme in there if you're sick of castle themes, but you just have to be super aware of what you're promising with that theme. So, yeah, I think that, I don't think it really matters so much where you start, so long as you're comfortable, or in the words of Kinesia, uncomfortable, uh, comfortably uncomfortable with where you're uh, with where you're starting, and you have a, you have a good idea of where you want to go. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and so it's almost sort of like the hype here is that maybe style of action teams go to something a little more comfortable. Yep. So I found um, that, like, what I found with the networks is there's a lot of modern themes that actually work pretty well in this case. Like, there's, uh, you know, the networks is about running a TV station. Um, the mechanisms in that game aren't, um, they're, they're not totally... I mean, it's a tableau building game, ultimately, and it's a drafting game, but it's also a game with a lot of really cool humor, and the um, and it feels pretty thematic because your show's age and, and drop, and I find that there's a lot of unexplored territory with a modern theme, you know, running an oil company, you know, and um, trying to... Um, uh, being a literary agent, you know, there's so many cool themes that I've seen a few games with like a journalistic theme, you're a newspaper, that's maybe not quite a modern theme, but if you, you don't have to go all the way back into like the Middle Ages for a cool theme. Um, uh, but yeah, the important thing is just being aware of what the theme is promising. Uh, and you'll be okay. But uh, yeah, absolutely, I found the same thing. You promise something crazy with your theme, <coughs> and your game is doing something crazy on its own, mechanically. And, um, and I think that's, uh, that could be a problem. So I think your instinct is absolutely right. But don't be afraid to look at a modern theme, and there might be some cool things happening there. I think we're uh, just about getting kicked out. Um, 
So I think we're done. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming by. And thank Andrew. <laughs>